Welcome back to the podcast of the legacy of John Williams. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, and this is a new episode of the Legacy Conversations. My guest today is music theorist and film musicologist Frank Lehman. Music is one of Frank's principal areas of study and research, with a special focus on the works of John Williams, including the most complete and thorough analysis of the themes and motifs from the Star Wars saga. He also recently wrote a book about film music called Hollywood Harmony and gave talks on film music structure and psychology at Tanglewood Learning Institute. talked with Frank about how he ended up being one of the most respected scholars studying the works of John Williams, how his love for Williams' music shaped his path in academia, and about his work of cataloging the themes and leitmotifs of the Star Wars series. Frank, welcome to the Legacy Conversation podcast on the legacy of John Williams. I'm so glad you accepted my invitation. It's a real honor to be here. Um, I feel a little awkward. I'm just a sort of humble academic and your many guests are such luminaries in film music. Uh, I hope I can uh, compete with the, the interesting things that they've said over the course of the podcast. Well, yes. Uh, so far, I had mostly musicians as guests, uh, but... The music of John Williams has also inspired creative people in many different ways, including scholars and academia. Uh, so he's definitely a force that ends up uh, influencing people in a wide variety of fields related to music and film. So I'd love to start our talk first asking about your background and how you ended up being interested in the music of John Williams as part of your studies and research in academia. Yeah, well, I, I think um, like many people who are interested in John Williams's music, I became uh, infatuated with it from a pretty early age. My parents remind me that when I was two years old or so, I, I would hum the NBC nightly news theme. Uh, this was an indication it was time for bath or something like that. You know, John Williams was present even in my most early uh, uh, memories. And uh, I developed a, a liking of his music alongside a liking of classical music and all sorts of other idioms uh, as, as a child uh, and developed that liking and love uh, as I learned to play instruments and learn about music history as I, I grew older. And there, there are a couple major developing uh, turning points in, in my, my interest in, in this composer. I suppose one of them would be Uh, there was there's a tape from I guess it was the Phillips classical label of uh, they did a whole run of Williams at the Pops um, in the 80s and early 90s and for one reason or another I, I saw the kids stuff cassette tape this was before CDs really became major okay um, and and this was you know this was a, a compilation of pieces of Williams's and a few other you know like Wizard of Oz and, and the Pink Panther uh, I picked up this tape I must have been like seven or eight years old uh, and listened to it 
every day, practically. Um, knew every single note, every single pitch and chord and orchestrational detail. Uh, the music that was on there by Williams, it included uh, the Superman March, Adventures on Earth from E.T., and uh, uh, several Star Wars pieces, um, Forest Battle, Asteroid Field. As much as music can become a part of the way you think about the world, you know, that yeah. particular tape for this you know, person of that age was absolutely essential to my, to my life. The more I studied his music, more that I uh, began to appreciate his craft. And also, uh, it has to be said, the more that I learned about classical music and, and concert music, Holst and Wal Walton and Wagner, you know, all this stuff was kind of in my head around the same time as a, as a child and later, later as a teenager. And I didn't make a, a firm distinction between these repertoires. Around the time that The Phantom Menace came out, so I, I didn't I didn't see the original Star Wars movies in theaters until they okay. were re-released in the 90s. You remember the, the amount of hype that was happening when The Phantom Menace was, was about to come out. And this is around the same time that a, a real uh, John Williams fan community was building and gathering online. Um, and I, I did my own very juvenile attempt to, to contribute to that with a, a, a silly little webpage called the John Williams Score Review. I mean, this was... Uh, you know, like a GeoCities page in 1997 <laughs> written by someone who was in middle school. It, 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 it's embarrassing now. And I think some of those reviews, uh, quite embarrassingly, are still up on JW fan, but, you know, whatever. It's like you know, the historical record or something. And later on, you know, as I went to college and I, I was committed to studying the, the arts and the humanities in some way. I didn't know if it was going to be as a performer or uh, a composer. I didn't even know what field. It may have been literature or philosophy. Um, and I, I dabbled a little bit in film composition. I think a lot of us do. Uh, turned out not to really be for me. Uh, <laughs> didn't have the, the stamina or the <laughs> self-confidence or fortitude to make it an industry. But I found that I also had, you know, a disposition towards the more scholarly side of things. And well, that's taken me pretty far. So would you say that you had a kind of progress from being a simple fan or admirer of John Williams' music, like many of us are, uh, to a, a student or someone with a more structured view on the subject, maybe? Well, I'll say, you know, when you enter in, in it, into any uh, academic discipline, you sort of learn the, the discourse, you learn what the priorities are, what the pre-existing uh, uh, literature is. And for, for film music, I mean, this is a relatively recent scholarly pursuit. It wasn't really until the, the late 1980s or, or even 90s when it became at all reputable to study music for, for the movies yeah. in, in, in any kind of rigorous way. All right, there was uh, Claudia Gorman's Unheard Melodies, which is an important um, English language uh, uh, book, uh, somewhat outdated in some respects nowadays, but still really uh, crucial in establishing this as something that, that scholars could pay attention to. Yeah. But it, it took a long time for musicologists, as opposed to film studies, uh, people to to get in on the act, and particularly uh, music theorists and people involved in picking apart the score. Um, to do the things I do now, you know, write uh, peer-reviewed articles and monographs uh, uh, and teach courses on, on music of Williams and others, it really does require uh, a full immerse, uh, immersion in in these disciplines and mm. it's been it's it, which i think is a wonderful thing you know it's a lot of fun and you get to meet a whole lot of wonderful people but it does take time it's yeah. not exactly the same as being a fan those things no. are exclusive but it's not the same absolutely and it seems to me that over the last decade as you were saying uh, there has been a surge 
in theoretical studies and academic writing about John Williams and film music in general. Of course, this has been an object of study and interest also well before the last 10 years, but I think that up until that point, uh, film music and John Williams' music was treated as a kind of a Cinderella of music theory studies and musicology. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there seems to be a new generation of scholars and researchers very interested in this subject and possibly with a less prejudiced mind toward the subject. Yeah, I think that's right. At least that's what I observed in my own uh, studies and, and, and interacting with my colleagues, that maybe there was a prejudice lingering from the days when film music was considered a lesser art than the other sorts of things that were studied in the academy, of course, classical music. Um, but but canons have shifted and, and new things have been entered into the, the accessible, um, the area of, of acceptable musical repertoire. And you're right that, that film music seems to not only be interesting in and of itself, but a wonderful tool to educate too. And I, I think this has to do partly with why it's become uh, much more prevalent in, in universities and in other sort of scholarly avenues is because when you teach film music, when, when you share it with people, uh, this is oftentimes a sort of art, a sort of music that people are quite familiar with already. They may not have thought about it in any intellectual or, or deep way, but unlike, say, teaching Bach or or even teaching esoteric jazz, you know, potentially art repertoires that are very important and really crucial. Uh, film music is immediate. It's something that's popular often. And uh, you can use it as a, as a pedagogue, as a teacher to, to bring students into this wider uh, uh, language of discussing music in a deep way. And, and it's really rewarding. So uh, we as a, as a discipline, as a musicologist, I think we've realized finally that film music is both a, a wonderful field in its own right, just for its own sake, but also because it's so valuable for students, so valuable, valuable for, for spreading the, the, the gospel of, of music studies more generally. Yeah. Do, do you think that our mutual friend uh, Emilio Odesino's book back in 2014 was a, a sort of trailblazer in this sense, opening the door for other students and theorists of Williams music in general? There's no yeah. doubt, uh, yeah, and the, the work that Emilio has done almost single-handedly has, has brought John Williams' studies into existence. I'm teaching a course, uh, you know, meant for a general audience next next spring, where that will be the one and only textbook required of, of the class. Uh, it's not because it's the only thing, but it's actually really good and, and very accessible. Um, so some, sometimes it does take someone like Emilio just to... Uh, uh, putting their work out there and others like myself seeing it and seeing that it's been well received and thinking, oh, I can do this too. And there's mm -hmm. much more to say. So it's not just about, you know, the, the zeitgeist or, or something like a, it's the sign of the times. I think it's something deeper, probably, uh, especially related to how uh, the figure of John Williams is being perceived right now by other musicians and also musicologists and theorists.
So I would like to touch upon your book that was recently published, Hollywood Harmony, uh, where you explore the way American cinema influenced and structure uh, the audience's perception of narrative and time through the usage of a specific musical grammar, especially concerning the sense of wonder. So I encourage all the listeners to go out and buy the book because it's a beautiful read. I'd love to ask you if you can elaborate a little bit on this subject and if you could illustrate perhaps uh, this with a couple of examples from John Williams' film music. Well, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, there is a, a distinct danger of me getting quite technical here, so I'll try to, to, to limit <laughs> okay. you know, the graduate-level uh, theoretical terminology to the absolute minimum. Um, this, this book, uh, Hollywood Harmony, that I wrote, it was... Uh, sort of inspired and based a little bit about off of my PhD dissertation, which was also a music theory uh, approach to, to film music. And funnily enough, I initially thought, I, you know, I, I arrived in graduate school thinking I would do a dissertation on Wagner. I love film music, but uh, I didn't realize that it was, you know, a kind of open area for, for that level of scholarship. And it eventually dawned on me that Wagner, you know, it, it's very, very difficult to say anything mm-hmm. new about yeah. One of the most written about figures in all of human history. Yeah. I'm sure it's completely apocryphal, but I, I remember when I took a, a Wagner course as an undergrad, the professor Michael Steinberg said that you know, we're going to be studying someone about whom more ink has been spilled than any other historical figure than Jesus <laughs> or Napoleon. I think actually it may have been Lincoln. It depends on the country you're in, whether they say okay. Napoleon or Lincoln. Or, assuredly not true that that's the case, but Still, I, I thought it was true, or at least I could feel the pressure of Wagner studies, whereas film music, and this was wide open, and all my advisors, they were to will, willing to sort of humor me as I, I went on this project. So I created the dissertation. It had a lot to do about the psychology and, and structure of film music, and then uh, developed a, quite a few ideas and did some new analyses, and that's that's the book that, that we have now. And one of the central claims in it is film composers are extremely sensitive to really small harmonic details, details of pitch construction. It's not the only thing, of course, that they use to, to affect the audience, but I really concentrated on, on pitch design, on, on the choice mm-hmm. of chords and so on. Um, and in one, one particular uh, sort of relationship is when the chords are not related by a major or minor scale, you know, what we call chromaticism. And that uh, really consistently in, in film music is associated with the feeling of wonder, this uh, quintessential cinematic feeling of awe and sublime and being swept away into another world. And of course, this is something that Williams, over the course of his six decade long career, uh, has, has absolutely perfected, right? No one really instills awe in the audience quite as well as mm. Williams, as, especially when he's with Spielberg and you know, collaborating yeah. with you know, other filmmakers who are also interested in pursuing that aesthetic. So to give you a couple of examples, I mean, it's almost hard to, to pick just one. Um, uh, uh, Empire of the Sun is a- absolutely chock full of these sorts of harmonic gestures where you'll set up a passage that's gradually building on a, a theme or, or some sort of melodic idea, and it hits a point of natural rest on you know what we would call a cadence, a half cadence on a, on a, a chord that needs to resolve somewhere specifically. Yeah. And then what Williams will do, and this is you know, the Williams touch, is to take that chord that needs to be resolved and resolve it, but to a very distantly related key. And often in the process, he'll open up the texture and add a choir or something. Um, so you have these modulating cadential resolutions, which 
uh, almost can't help but give you chills down your spine the way that they affect your expectations. So in Empire of the Sun, I mean, there it's replete with examples of this because the movie is full of scenes of childlike awe. Uh, but the yeah. one that comes to mind immediately, which I think I mentioned in the book, is uh, when Jim, you know, young, young Christian Bale first sees the uh, Japanese fighter pilots when he's sent off to that internment camp, and they have that beautiful Empire of the Sun theme uh, played rather softly. And then the moment that uh, he sort of exchanges the salute to the Japanese pilots and they return the gesture, which is this, you know, uh, Spielberg magic moment of yeah. you know, just wordless wonderment. That's when the, the whole piece shifts tonally and we have the, this massive opening up of texture and harmony. This sort of gesture is not limited, of course, to Williams. And, and, the, and the book that I've written isn't specifically about John Williams' music. Uh, if anything, I had to sort of limit myself to not talk <laughs> entirely about him because you know, he's such a, a versatile and, and a prolific composer that any musical sort of phenomenon you're looking for, you can locate in his filmography, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but but Empire Sun is, is full of them. You know, think of any given score that that features either a child experiencing some wonderment or adults having a childlike experience you know looking at the dinosaurs or of course you know witnessing a new planet and and there's a whole suite of sorts of tricks that, that williams will employ yeah it seems to me that he's able to conjure uh, that childlike feeling that you were uh, talking about even if with a, both with simple gestures but also with very complex uh, architecture over the course of the score. In this sense, I think that E.T. is probably one of the, you know, his magnum opus in this sense, because it's all about tension and release, you know, how to build upon a very deep, intimate uh, way in which he's able to conjure up that childlike feeling.
when you uh, speak about the cadences that really trigger our expectation when watching a scene and how a game displays with our perception of time and reality and in the hands of someone like John Williams, this can also subvert our expectations. So what do you think have been John Williams' uh, innovations in this regard? Do you think he pushed to the maximum limit the traditional approach of early Hollywood composers like Steiner, Korngold, Newman, Wuxman, or did he also innovate as well? Yeah, that's a, a, a tricky question because for one thing, we have so many different eras within his output. You can look at yeah. whether he was innovative as a, a television composer or as an arranger for Mahalia Jackson or as a, a composer, arranger for Anna-Sophie Mutter, right? So spanning his entire career. Uh, but, but to sort of go back to uh, the example you raised of E.T., which I think you mentioned musical architecture, that, I don't know if I call it innovation, but certainly something that he uniquely contributed to Hollywood is this sense of the long line. And it's not just at the level of the theme or the cue or even the musical filmic act. It's really the entire score there that is organized so that over the course of two, two and a half hours, you, you go on a genuinely musical journey. Uh, there's a, a wonderful article um, by Tom Schneller about, it's primarily about the score to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but he talks a little bit about E.T. as well, where the, the thesis of that um, essay is that Williams will uh, hint at musical ideas and over the course of the score, allow them sort of organically to grow until you reach this moment of uh, apotheosis where everything just flourishes and you get a cathartic statement of, say, the mountain theme in, in Close Encounters or the flying theme in E.T. Uh, Schneller, he does a wonderful job showing exactly the sort of very specific musical um, techniques that go into this. It's totally ingenious. And it's it's rare, right? It's rare for a lot of reasons, um, not least of which is that film composers in general don't have the kind of time or luxury to to yeah. write out these long-term plans, nor necessarily the need to. I mean, it's not a it's, it's certainly not a requirement for a film to be successful for it to have a score yeah. that functions as a symphony, right? Even in Star Wars, for example, and that that sort of long process is actually somewhat rare, right? You don't you don't see they're they're token examples of themes gradually building over the course of an entire score. Um, but in general, it's a little bit more isolated than that. I think maybe Empire Strikes Back, that may be the one score where you have a, a true thematic trajectory that's very carefully uh, and meticulously modulated over the course of the entire yeah. movie where each yeah. theme gets its own story, right? It, each yeah. theme, the Imperial March has its story to tell and you know the climactic utterances. The Yoda theme has its own little catharsis when he lifts the X-Wing. Um, even Han and Leia's theme, right? They're, they're all, the whole score has this sort of overall shape, which is very linked to the, the way that the motifs play out. Um, you don't see that necessarily so much in, in other composers' music, uh, partly because it's difficult and partly because it's not required.
I was listening just in, in the last few days uh, to the new release of Minority Report by La La Land, and I, I was struck by uh, Williams' choices in the score because they are very unusual for me. For example, he wrote this beautiful lyrical subject for the character of Sean, the son of Tom Cruise's character in the film. And it's interesting to, to note that it's a theme for a dead character. We don't see the character anywhere in the film except for a flashback scene. So his presence in the film is felt mostly or exclusively through the music, especially in the scene where the precog, Agatha, tells the imaginary story of Sean as if he continued to live. Uh, so it's touching to see how much the music guides our feeling for the characters there. So it's an it's an absolutely magnificent theme, so understated, and, and, and like a lot of Williams' melodies on, on the surface, you know, the, the the materials at first glimpse might seem rather simple. I mean, very restrained melodically, but once you see how it plays out over the course of eight or so measures and these internal key changes and very very subtle melodic twists, is Williams often emphasizes in interviews how the most difficult part of his job is, is yeah. crafting melodies. And it's something, you know, I'm teaching a, a unit on melodic composition right now in one of my, my freshman classes. And we try to come up with some criteria for writing effective themes. And, and there are some things that we can identify as, as making uh, a coherent or syntactical uh, melodic idea. But what Williams does, and you, and you can hear because they all sound utterly uh, inevitable that it couldn't have been otherwise. And yet we know well from hearing him speak in interviews that, that he, he goes through hundreds of drafts of these things. Um, with Minority Report, I mean, the, that new release, I've only had a chance to listen to it once or twice all the way through, but what a revelation for all of these uh, fantastic recent uh, uh, full chronological scores to hear the entire presentation of the movie soundtracks mastered so wonderfully. Uh, uh, it gives you a whole new appreciation and you can... You can begin to see the way that, that uh, you know, quite apart from, you know, the still quite deliberate uh, uh, presentation of score on the original soundtrack albums. Right? Yes. Williams has a hand in it, of course, uh, but it's, it's another thing entirely to hear how they play out as the, the film unfolds. And that's a really nice example. I mean, hearing all sorts of things I never knew before, which is a wonderful feeling <laughs> to, to have with any film score. And uh, another subject that you talked about in one of your papers, which I'd like to touch upon with you, is uh, uh, the analysis you made about the John Williams' action skirty within the general theme of uh, film music as concert music or uh, how the composer translated a film cue into a formal piece of music with its own structure, development, and so on. So 
What are the most crucial aspects you discovered about this specific trait of John Williams' music? Because it's very dear to a lot of admirers of, of John's music. Myself included, like I said, you know, I was turned <laughs> on to his music in the first place after you get past the sort of bath time NBC News logo. It's, it's, it's his concert works. It's the asteroid field. It's uh, Adventures on Earth. And in, in some respects, this is a gift that just keeps on giving. I mean, I, I, yeah. what a treasure, what a gift to have all these new violin uh, showcases for Anna-Sophie Mutter of themes that he's revisiting for sometimes the second, third, fourth yeah. time. You know, uh, I mean, there's apparently an unheard uh, uh, violin showcase of uh, Han Solo and the Princess theme that we've, we've seen glimpses of the sheet music on, on Instagram that people yeah. have, you know, very obsessively <laughs> tried to... to uh, um, analyze, but th that's an example of, you know, a theme for which there are multiple concert arrangements and some of them, it's one suspects Williams has forgotten about, like he, so, you know, it doesn't have a perfect memory of every last, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. he came up with. Uh, but as far as what makes these successful, um, I mean, there are different strategies. In some cases, the, the music is already written for the film in a, in a, in a sense, symphonically. And I think that the E.T. Yeah. Uh, Adventures on Earth ending set piece is a nice example of that. I mean, the the, uh, the concert arrangement uh, does differ in some very profound ways from the original, but yes. crucially not the ending, right? After you get to the point where they're, they're, their bikes re land back in the forest and yeah. people say goodbye, there's really virtually no change from yeah. what was written. And there's all sorts of circumstances that are interesting about how this, this piece of music was conceived almost operatically, right? Um, but for some pieces, and I, I think you, know, you mentioned action scherzos in particular, where uh, the music was originally quite dictated by what was happening on screen. Right? It's, it's very subordinate. Um, that that presents a real challenge to film composers who want to make something approaching a coherent musical utterance in, in the concert hall. Uh, and sometimes it's more successful than others. And, and William certainly has a few tricks up his sleeve. Uh, but but you can sort of tell from the pieces, the kinds of action scarcity that he chooses to elaborate on. Um, those tend to be the ones that have a little bit more of that sort of mu long musical line. They may be somewhat more thematic. You know, the asteroid field is the classic example, which is organized around two very distinctive and very sort of, to use uh, Mark Richards' term terminology, very grammatical themes, right? They have yeah. a, a beginning, a middle, and, a, and an end. And the major compositional, or maybe I should say arranging intervention that he uses for that piece is basically to repeat a big section uh, to reacquaint you with that opening, uh, very jagged, fascinating musical idea. Um, and everything else besides the very beginning and very ending is more or less what's what's in the film. The cut version of Hanalea's theme notwithstanding, but there's a, you know, just as good a sort of puckish ending to that piece uh, in the concert arrangement.
you look at something like the, the Tintin uh, the duel. The duel, that's yeah. right, that he did. Well, there was a, a kind of concert arrangement for the, the album um, version of, of Tintin, and then he went ahead and, and did a, a revised violin, you know, virtuosic version for yeah. uh, Mütter. And there his tricks are, you know, write elaborate cadences, give the violinist something to do that's interesting uh, throughout cadenza, two-thirds mark, you know, that's kind of obligatory. And really nail the ending, right? That That's what so often is lacking in, in film music is a sense of closure. Yeah. So in so many of these action scherzi, there is this emphatic joyous jubilant overstated ending right <laughs> i think uh, he, he himself uh, talked about this in a recent interview uh talking about the the, the concert arrangement for Anne sophie mutter where he said exactly most film music pieces end is like morendo rallentando the piece of music in the film has to fade away while instead in this concert arrangement he has the luxury of you know gets a very elaborate cadenza or even a very elaborate ending with false stops and then the piece turns up again and so on you can hear his sense of fun in this sense that that is absolutely right he really does luxuriate uh, in your words and in, in those endings and, and false endings right <laughs> the, the the most absurd example being the forest battle which has you know what like eight false endings <laughs> and i've seen these things performed occasionally like even the adventures of han probably the most recent piece of his that has a, a, a fake out ending and the audience uh, doesn't exactly know what to do so you get a few errant claps here and yeah. there when, when the, the first false ending. and and he has his ways of sort of gesturing to the audience and the orchestra simultaneously to keep the applause down so that you know you actually get to the real ending and if my my little interpretation of the the forest battle this is just speculation but i think at the time in, in 1983 for all he knew this is the last star wars film that he would ever work on and this was the big uh orchestral action set piece concert arrangement that he wrote so why not go out with not just a bang not just two but a series of like eight uh you know increasingly uh ridiculous almost over the top c major cadences yeah. and of course little did he know that he would be then writing <laughs> another trilogy and then another trilogy <laughs> worth of music so we'll see what happens in uh, rise of skywalker i think that may you know there may not be so many yeah. fake, fake out endings there because it really that that is supposed to be to, to use his word uh to putting a bow on the whole enterprise It's very uh, fun to see the score of the first battle when in the last section he say 
Kankanish. Really, it's a can-can. So it's, uh, I remember when I first listened to the soundtrack album back in the day, when I was very little, I already had a very strong memory about what the music was in the film. And then I listened to the soundtrack album and I said, this piece isn't anywhere in the film, but I like it nonetheless. You know, for me, it opens like a, uh, a new world. I listened to Rossini's William Tell Overture and I say, well, I see an analogy there. both ways and maybe I shouldn't admit this but often I acquaint myself with the, the the film score sometimes years before I actually see the movies oh yeah uh, sometimes never right not, not so much with Williams I mean I still have a few of his early comedies to go in Star Wars I mean I I, I knew a lot of those concert arrangements before I'd seen the films because like I said I, I was took a while for me to see them in, in, in the theaters I had to rely on VHS's and I got that kid stuff CD and then became fully first in the ins and outs of the forest battle long before I actually saw the Ewoks, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, using guerrilla tactics against the, the ATSTs. Um, and that leads to a different kind of experience. You know, when you know the, the, the music in a different form going into the movie, then that, yeah. that kind of converts your movie going experience in some interesting Sometimes, ways. yes. It's hard not to, you know, unless it's a really unsuccessful movie, it's, not, it's hard not to be at least a little bit immersed and sort of unconsciously responding to the music, right? The, the way that, that cinema operates is really to, to sort of pacify us and just to get us into the, the mood. Um, but when you really do know the music, I, you know, I sometimes I, I try to turn that on when I go to the films and and, and track what's happening to the, the score. It's one of the reasons I don't, I, I think probably like a lot of us, I try to avoid musical spoilers for, for yeah. movies or major movies like, you know, all, Attack of the Clones, I think, the, the soundtrack album maybe that came out a few... A few weeks before, yes. Yeah, and I, I had to like hide the soundtrack album <laughs> so, to whet my, my appetite. I listened to the bonus track the, you know, the, on the conveyor belt uh, you know, obsessively uh, as a, a taste, <laughs> you know, something to, to hold me over. And of course, with that, that particular cue, for one, it's athematic, so I wasn't, I didn't notice yeah. at the time, I, I wasn't getting any leitmotifs or any new material that would be repeated in the clones. And then it was also more or less uh, hacked up and, and almost yeah. entirely expunged from the final cut. So this is it's a yeah, kind of perverse yeah. example. You don't almost hear it at all in the film, I think. Maybe the beginning and just a little bit of bits and pieces all over 
the scene. The scene. It has this wonderful sort of conveyor belt, uh, uh, not not quite jazziness, but you feel he's sort of ch- channeling his dad's band. And you're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a uh, it's it's a kind of continuation of the piece from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. You know, the minecart chase, which uh, I always found it has a very distinct. A relationship to a piece by Raymond Scott, Powerhouse, which is very popular, of course. And when you realize that John Williams' father played the drums in the Raymond Scott Quintet, then you can see an analogy. It's not that far that probably Williams thought, I can write my own version of Powerhouse here. <laughs> emphasize how knowing a lot of his music is in terms of references and allusions you know to generally not to his own work at least not intentionally but to this much wider uh, uh, encyclopedia of other musical idioms that he that he knows and, and lives and breathes so uh, you see examples in the last Jedi of citation of the Brazil um, or the long goodbye you know how much of that is his choice and how much of it is the director's I don't know but it's you know it's a nice Easter egg for all of us but uh, you know, there are times when you can just hear him absolutely relishing the, the opportunity to, to, to kind of show off and to, to plug something that most listeners will not be familiar with. I mean, perhaps we have a, a kind of collective understanding from having watched Bugs Bunny or whatever, a, yeah. a, a powerhouse because you know, it was so used, uh, or Ren and Stimpy you know, for a different generation. But chances are most audiences don't know the academic festival overture that well. And yet he cites that in Indiana Jones 4 when they are, uh, you know, the motorcycles are plowing through the library at, you know, I think the set was Yale. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just it throws in this little cute little nod to a pre-existing piece of art music, you know, and that, that kind of stuff is everywhere in his work. And 
and it could easily go unnoticed is him having fun. Yes, it may be not intellectual or very postmodern in this sense, but I think that one of the great qualities of his music is to conjure up those uh, collective memory feelings. If you think about Superman, of course it's music about the hero, but it's also about the mythology behind the hero. And the same goes for, of course, Star Wars. It's all over the place, but also Harry Potter. It seems like when he wrote Hedwig's theme, it's not just his own impression of an owl <laughs> or even just the characters, but a sense of magic and how magic was interpreted and uh, illustrated by uh, composers in the past, like Tchaikovsky or Prokofiev and so on. Exactly. Um, no, he's really, he, he is able to tap into this uh, wellspring of, of musical associations, many of which were, as he suggests, set up in the 19th century, right? Uh, uh, it's funny because whenever he speaks to his own musical tastes, first of all, he always says that he doesn't go to the movies, right? Yeah. So, but he, he mentions uh, Viennese classical music of Haydn and Mozart as his music he gets the most joy out of. But I don't necessarily hear all that much Haydn or Mozart in his uh, active composition. It seems to be much more 19th century and then yeah. you know, various very specific references from the 20th century, Prokofiev and, and uh, Copeland and Stravinsky, and Stravinsky yes. of course. Yeah. I think when you had Conrad Pope on, on your podcast and talked about how this is kind of like a lost art that this, uh, not only being able to write effective film music, but participating in this tradition of, of multiple musical styles rather than citing, you know, the temp track or, or, or just using film music as the reference point going into this much deeper, broader, um, well of pre-existing music. And, and Williams continues to do that. I mean, I was really pleased with The Last Jedi that he, he made use of, I don't know if this is uh, uh, indisputable, but it sounds to me quite Sibelian, right? The yeah. music on Octo, um, yeah. particularly the, the sort of Luke Saraban theme sounds like something that could have come out of the second symphony. This yeah. sort of austerity to it and the clarity of the, the textures and rhythms. And, you know, 99.99% of the world's population is probably never going to hear Sibelius, but suddenly they get something that that is infused with this you know, really important musical figure. And sure, you know, if you're a, a classical music purist, then it might prefer that your <laughs> your listeners are actually going to the this symphony yes. to hear these things. And, and, and I think Williams would be the first person to, to concede that's the preferable experience. But there's still a value in, in, in just getting... Um, that second hand and, and done with such craft and, and such originality by Williams.
This brings me to talk about your work of uh, cataloging the themes, leitmotifs, and thematic subjects of Star Wars. This work was first published in Emilio Odissino's anthology volume, John Williams' Music for Films, Television, and the Concert Stage. And this work has been featured and cited by many critics, including the New Yorker's music critic Alex Ross. So I think I speak for many if I say that it was about time <laughs> some serious musicologist would tackle this specific subject, especially now that we have almost nine films written by the same composer in the span of 40 plus years. So I want to ask first how this idea of creating this catalog born in you and also if you can explain a little bit the methodology that you use in doing it. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, well, first, I should give credit to Emilio for uh, permitting me to reuse this and, and to continue developing the thematic catalog after it uh, went into that wonderful, if rather pricey uh, yeah. volume that we both contributed to. Yeah, he, he was very generous there. And and the idea was actually when I when we first corresponded, he said, there's a possibility I'd like to do some like a book or something that involves some of this material later on. So it would be okay if I replicate it in a book. Little did I know that actually it would its home would be in the form of this sort of online document rather than yeah. something that people, you know, and I, I, that, that the open access aspect really appeals to me. Especially in this time and age, I think about, uh, I see a lot of people picking it up in on social media and on the internet in general, and it, it's it's a reference now, I could well, say. It, it, I think it speaks to an, an interest and in, in perhaps a need for something relatively systematic because we actually don't have that from the composer himself. We can yeah. pick apart a few interviews and look at the wider notes for uh, the original Star Wars and he kind of identifies some of the motifs there, but uh, he's <laughs> kind of frustratingly, if understandably tight-lipped about his process oftentimes. So he, unlike say Howard Shore who worked with Doug Adams on that wonderful Lord of the Rings yeah. volume where, where it really is uh, you're, you're getting the composer's input. Here, um, there's a bit more, I guess you could say, uh, musicological intent and, and, and uh, uh, effort put into this because we don't have uh, necessarily a definitive catalog from the composer himself. So the, so the, the motivations for this is because there was a need and, and many people have done things like this before. I mean, I'm hardly the first to have come up with a list of Star Wars themes and, and uh, you know, I, I had these sort of things floating around for a long time. A lot of this came out of email correspondence that I had with Mark Richards, a okay. film music researcher who, who has that spectacular blog, Film Music Notes, where, I mean, if you're looking to learn about the themes rather than just see them identified, but see actually how they work from their musical structure standpoint, check out <laughs> Film Music Notes. It's, it's one of a kind, also open access online. But he and I, we correspond by email about, you know, have you, did you notice that this little musical idea is repeated? Or have you ever picked out this uh, connected chord progression, which, you know, links episodes six and, and one, right? Little subtle things that, that maybe weren't so uh, noticeable, or at least that, that hadn't been taken stock of in some of the more, you know, say, informal discourses. And, and Wikipedia seems to be yeah. the, the major point of comparison here. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong 
with the the, um, the page on Star Wars music, but because it's not univocal, right? There's there, yeah. anyone can edit it. Uh, you get all sorts of conflicting or, or confusing information there. So you know, they, Emilio offered me this opportunity, and then, and then I ran with it afterwards and continued to update it. You know, sometimes every day I'll make little alterations, cleaning up the notation here, uh, adding a new source. Uh, I'm, I'm shamefully. Uh, uh, unfamiliar with a lot of non-English literature on, on these scores. And this is something okay. I'm seeking to, to ameliorate. So part of the, the catalog now is, I think, a, a pretty hefty little bibliography, which hopefully includes some sources which are not on everyone's radar, but that are actually really important. One that comes to mind is Chloe Hubei's uh, absolutely spectacular dissertation. Oh, yes. And, and it's, a, it's a French language dissertation, um, but I mean, even even if you don't read French, I mean, the, the musical examples in there, and she, I think she got in contact with Conrad Pope too, and and, and really picks apart the, the prequel trilogy, uh, okay. the way the music is used there, boosting these people's researches. I think now it's become part of the, the, the task of this catalog. Yeah. Um, as far as methodology goes, I mean, it's constantly changing based on the <laughs> whatever I, I discover. Um, uh, importantly, I, I had to be very consistent and systematic in, in deciding what counts as thematic and what counts as incidental. So uh, it may may come off as pedantic, but at least I hope that that you can disagree with what my labels, but at yeah. least you'll see what the process is. So, so like one point of contention perhaps is the fact that in, in the catalog, I, I list both the main theme, its A section and its B section as, you know, I still call them the A theme. So, you know, if you're looking to be really rigorous, I guess that would just be one leitmotif, but they are distinct musical ideas and, and they recur sometimes detached from one another, like the, you know, the, the second part of the the theme down. Da, 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 I mean, yeah. that, that comes here and there in the original trilogy without any nod to the opening or Goldian material. Um, so that suggests to me that, you know, that it may be worth including within that portion of the catalog. Yeah. And then there's the incidental motifs, which is like the catch-all for everything else that maybe is just repeated <laughs> twice. And like, I find a new one of these every day. Like I was just looking, there's so much wonderful stuff that that is unreleased from the prequels and, and yeah. sequel trilogy, like Attack of the Clones, especially. There, it, it, it maybe is rightfully, uh, you know, um, denigrated for being a kind of laughable movie in some respects, but William still gave it his all. I mean, there are thematic and motivic details there that I think only a full chronological complete release of the score is in an album will, will bring to people's attention I mean, just little uh, uh micro motifs when they're on camino or recurrent harmonic successions you know just really small details that are indisputably intentional right this is a, a way of composing that's very efficient you, you know, yes. not have to reinventing your your material every cue so these sorts of things is part of the joy of of studying these i think is you find something new every time. Yeah, um, I mean, but, with nine movies, it's hard not to. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 becoming a daunting in a way. But do you think that uh, some of these small incidental motifs that a lot of which you 
uh, really diligently cataloged. Uh, do you think they are uh, specifically thought by Williams as leitmotifs or perhaps they are gestures or like his thumbprints over the score, like to use a, maybe a silly analogy, a lot of the films use those uh, old style uh, wipes to change the, from one scene to the other. So perhaps he's doing with the music the same thing, you know, uses some techniques to repeat throughout the score. Oh, I think that's undoubtable. Um, and, and the wipes idea that's really, especially, especially in the prequel trilogy, again, you know, all those cuts to various Coruscant um, cityscapes. Each one of them gets some kind of fanfare, you know, <laughs> whether it's bright and bold or kind of muted in Revenge of the Sith, it's, they're still there. And those are, you know, that's a musical style topic, even if the, the precise details of the theme differ from wipe to wipe, then there's still some commonality in the way the music is orchestrated or the, you know, the, the various uh, voicings and the way that the horns are planing, you know, what have you. That really does straddle between being motivic and just being an aspect of his general compositional style. And, and to give you a really specific example, in 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 uh, Force Awakens and Last Jedi, you see a kind of proliferation of this uh, tension motif, especially in Last Jedi. I mean, it's, it occurs like almost eighty times, depending on you, how you count. Yeah, or some variant of that. hinted at in, in, um, in The Force Awakens, like so many things are in Last Jedi, and then because it was so heavily temp-tracked, it, it, sometimes the, the recurrences are literal. But yes. There's this tension motif, and then, it, you know, of course, it also uh, effloresces into the uh, uh, desperation theme for all those big sacrifices. But, I mean, if you're even sort of casually familiar with Williams's music, you also hear, well, that kind of sounds like, you know, uh, Anderton's Great Escape from Minority Report or the yeah. Ludlow theme from Jurassic Park Lost World. It's just a, an aspect of his vocabulary. It's, you know, yeah. one of these little musical tricks that he likes to repeat, knowingly or not. I kind of suspect not, right? Um, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, in the, the, even if it is... Um, not certainly not leitmotivic in most cases because I, or at least he wouldn't call that leitmotivic. He rarely uses that word anyway. Yeah. I think he, he refers to themes or melodic identifications, which is so Wagnerian too. I mean, Wagner, of course, he never used the word leitmotif in his own acres of forests that were felled to provide yeah. the paper for his his uh, logeria. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was others who, who kind of came up with the term leitmotif and and, and systematized what. I mean, clearly, he was thinking deeply about that when he was composing the ring cycle or whatever. And I think also clearly Williams is thinking about these things deeply, but he may not exactly treat them in, in a really literal sense. And that's one of the reasons why you also 
get inconsistencies with the way that that his themes are deployed or little head scratchers uh right right back to the very first star wars movie yes. of course with the uh, the use of leia's theme for uh obi-wan's death yeah yeah some of the usage of a leitmotif in these films as a as much as is uh, universally celebrated and recognized, but it also created point of views and even some debate among fans, you know? <laughs> which is which is what, I mean, I love, I live for that kind of thing. Uh, and Williams encourages it by being evasive too. Uh, <laughs> he, now, to his credit, he offered a really nice explanation, I thought in the, uh, you know, the original liner notes for the New Hope soundtrack when he's talking about Kenobi's death and that, 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 that he thought that scene called for grand yeah. emotionality and that's what, Leia's scene was capable of. So, you know, it, it makes emotional sense if it doesn't necessarily make all that much semantic sense. Now, the, the turn is when we listeners or, or fans or commentators try to generate some sort of interpretation that justifies the usage on the basis of its label, right? And that can get very tricky, right? Um, so if, you know, you're hearing Yoda's theme during the Bespin um, pursuit, Luke is, you know, chasing around. It may be because yes. that theme fits, or maybe because, you know, <laughs> Williams is thinking, well, now Luke is using the lessons that Yoda inculcated him with. I kind of suspect it was mostly because it fit the scene emotionally, though. that he does it probably because otherwise uh, it would sound like sticking a jingle to a character, you know, like in uh, TV advertising. He generally avoids that, being too literal. Also because probably he, especially for the original trilogy, he tackled really one film at a time and treated it as its own entity. Star Wars is very different from Empire Strikes Back, which is very different from Return of the Jedi. And that probably changed with the prequels and even more so with the sequel trilogy because the time span in which he wrote the films are much shorter than the original ones because he was already aware of course that it would have been him writing throughout the three movies and not just one at a time yeah that's a really nice point and i, and I never quite thought of it that way with with that example of going back to the use of leia's theme during during obi-wan's death i mean that's the sort of cathartic biggest statement of that theme within that movie, maybe yes. the, the, the chasm crossfire usage uh, as well, but that's much more clipped, right? So it's, it's you know, his way of giving that theme a big sort of goal, uh, something to strive yes. for, something to, to show off. Uh, he, he might not have known that Leia would recur as a character and that she might have other opportunities to have big tooty statements of her theme at that stage. I almost feel like it's kind of, psychoanalysis to him <laughs> up to this point because he has to continue confront himself with this past self and uh, keeping material he wrote 40 years ago with material that he's writing now so i wonder how he feels about that and right. of course i guess he's proud of what he did on the original films but he could think also that's another me it's not the me 
writing today. So, And you get to hear the best of both worlds, or maybe the worst of both worlds in the sequel trilogy, because on one hand, that those uh, they offer him a whole new canvas to, to return to these themes and, and to develop new ideas for you know, the next generation. But yeah. at the same time, they're, they're very, very heavily wedded to nostalgia, and there are a lot more needle drops, I think, to previous statements of themes. Um, I mean, especially in Last Jedi, where every 10 seconds you hear the Force theme, right? Yes. So, so, I mean, sometimes the subtle, I think in that case, it's rather crude, not ineffective, but maybe not so artful, uh, doesn't impact my overall positive uh, assessment of the score. I mean, I think it's it's uh, uh, highlights vastly overcome any any flaws that it might have from sort of leaning on that or... or, or yeah, on previous material, yes. Yeah, sloppy, it's, it's not, know, sloppy is not the right word, but um, you know, the integration of the Yoda concert arrangement or Leia's theme, I mean, they actually work really nicely in context. So I can't fault um, him or... Uh, and the director, the sound editor, or you know whoever was, was yes. involved in the chain, you know, it's, it's oftentimes hard to exactly say why this particular music occurs here. It probably has to do with the different conditions in which he scored um, the the movies in respect to the older films. You know, he writes in larger blocks. He receives portions of films at a time, so he revises a lot. Uh, the scenes that keep changing. So the big difference, it's more in the conditions, in the in the approach, uh, technically, uh, more than the language itself. I think that I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, you look at the the cue list for Last Jedi. It's it's insanity, and it's like 120 cues and inserts, and some of them last five measures, and some of them last you know the 100 measures. So he, he's writing a ton of music, and I think this is going to be the same case in. Um, uh, the Rise of Skywalker, which you know, completed reshoots, I think, pretty recently. And everything is always up to the last minute, but uh, uh, there are, in some ways, there are fewer opportunities to, for him to write in these wide, uh, large canvas, um, broad brushstroke sorts of ways, which means we hear fewer examples of um, uh, the asteroid field and, and hear more examples of uh, you know, uh, the Falcon or Scared So for X-Wings or yes. Chase from Coruscant, which are very modular and very repetitive, super effective, but also, you know, cut up almost beyond recognition sometimes yes. in the final, uh, final scores. You know, part of me hopes that, like, you know, J.J. Abrams will realize that this is, you know, giving John Williams a large canvas, that's one of the best assets that this franchise has. Just let him write 
you know, an elaborate action scared. So as a concert yeah. piece, they will cut to it, right? That with a dream. I don't think it's going to happen, right? Because that's... But what do you expect from the rise of Skywalker music-wise? So do you have any ideas of what might be? Or... It's a dangerous game to, to speculate. <laughs> I, can, I can say what I'd like to happen. I mean, the cataloger in me would like to see everything checked off, right? Uh, uh, so that we have one final uh, callback to... So some of those motifs, um, and I, I think it's actually there's a distinct possibility. Not everything, of course. Not like uh, uh, probably not going to be hearing the, uh, the Jar Jar motif. Oh. <laughs> It'll be a real surprise. I mean, maybe uh, yes, you know that Jar Jar theory, uh, theory is correct. Um, but I, I think that the, there will be uh, probably a, a greater employment of some of the materials from the prequel trilogy than we've heard so far. If only because it seems like in the the way that they're hyping and marketing this movie that there's a kind of an attempt to connect not just this trilogy not just it with the original trilogy but the whole nine yeah. uh, film saga that plus the fact that williams i mean he recently did this arrangement of across the stars we know that he has at least one piece of music from the prequel era in his ear and who yeah. knows maybe there's a good reason for it to feature in, in rise of the skywalker that'd be very edifying to hear because it's such a, a gorgeous um theme that didn't really it's get beautiful much. Totally didn't get much play after episode two. I mean, there's some nice small scale variants in, in Sith, but not not very much. Yeah. Um, Duel of the Face. Like, as a as far as crowd pleasers go, and, and judging from the trailer, you know, some of these big epic duels could really be well suited with the theme like that. But I'm dubious that we'll hear like Lando or the Cloud Cities theme, even if you know Billy D. Williams is an important part of the cast, because there's a good chance that Williams doesn't remember that he wrote that in the first place. <laughs> but then again, I've been I, like. He used the Death Star motif for that ironing scene in The Last Jedi. And, you know, there, there are some pretty deep cuts to, to use Ryan Johnson's language there. So uh, uh, you never know exactly what's going to show up. I think it'll be, you know, I'll, uh, even if it's not a successful movie, which is no reason for it to, not overuse for us yeah. to expect it's not, it'll be a fascinating score and, and something that we'll be studying for years to come. In this sense, do you think uh, comparisons with Richard Wagner and his ring cycle, which abound since the days of the original films, are still fair uh, to the work of Williams? Or do you think it's still more like a, a super duper version of Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf in a way? And I don't mean it to downplay anything or anyone. <laughs> well, you know, comparing something to Prokofiev is not a, a, a downplaying Williams in any way. Um, from what I know, and this is mostly based on um, another film music scholar, Grace uh, Edgar. She did an interview with Williams where he said quite candidly that he that he doesn't 
like Wagner and it doesn't really base his music on, on his style. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's still a little bit less in the Wagnerian vein and a little bit more in, in, in sort of the film musical or Prokofievian. So yeah, a little bit more citational, a little bit less developmental. Um, but that said, it, I think we, we, what we see in The Last Jedi, if that's any indication, the way that Ray's theme, and The March of the Resistance, and even Rose's theme, I mean, that's the kind of banner theme from that, that film, it really does get some some a, a, a good thematic work at. It's transformed, it appears in, in ways that are not so literal-minded, and I think that there, there's ample opportunities for that in The Rise of Skywalker. But do I think that it will be like, it'll approach the Wagnerian ideal of just every single moment being uh, uh, drawn from part of his leitmotivic vocabulary. No, I don't think it's going to be like Parsifal or Gertrude Demerung, just because that's never, like Williams has never done that before. And I don't think that it's easy to write that sort of music. Uh, suppose Howard Shore in The Lord of the Rings, that, that, that comes a little bit closer, just in terms of, you know, that has, has nothing about the quality of the music, but rather the, the mentality of his composition. Yes. I think Shore was a little bit more conscious about, you know, I have this library, I'm going to use it at the appropriate points and you know, deliberately transform themes of the course of three or so movies. It's, it's important that he had the full view in mind when he yes. started out, right? You know what the narrative of all three Lord of the Rings books are all three Hobbit books, um, not all three Hobbit yes. books, <laughs> right? One <laughs> Hobbit book, three yeah. uh, movies, uh, yes. <laughs> somehow. Um, so I think, yeah, I think they're both Wagnerian in that they're using music as drama and trying to evoke some mythical past or, or future using suggestive light motifs which don't always map onto labels yes. that easily uh but I, I i don't think that it's going to be it's, it's not going to be the kind of score where you can just go ahead and say this is something that Wagner did and this is something else that Wagner did it's really going to be more oh. williams style he's not scoring the world or the galaxy in this sense but he's scoring more the story and the characters more than the world where the story and the characters are living in. For me, it seems as though William's empathy for the characters seems to be really significant in his passion for this this particular project. And, and of course, Daisy Ridley, who he seems to be infatuated with, uh, <laughs> that he has a, a real sympathy and, or, or empathy towards her character. And that, that's what uh, enabled him to write this really interesting, kind of atypical music for her in terms of, you know, the standard hero theme. It's not a standard theory, no. hero theme in any way. It's very introspective and, and, and kind of elusive in some interesting ways. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how he, he treats that that theme. If, if, if the the rumors, uh, most of them unfounded perhaps, of her you know lineage being further discussed and manipulated in this movie like if it turns out she's a clone of the emperor right then we may <laughs> we may well hear some interesting manipulations of her music along those lines and the thing I, I go back to is like this the, the concert arrangement he wrote for for violin has this new ending which yeah is far, far evil sort of dark side sounding than, than yeah. the original maybe he, he knows something we don't he didn't when he wrote uh, the score for episode seven he does now, though. No, he left many doors open in this sense, I think, because probably he was asked to leave as much doors open to any variations. I don't think uh, they had decided, Johnson and, and uh, Kasdan and all the writers of Force Awakens, what, what exactly they were going to do with the characters. So he but, wrote a flexible uh, theme. That's yes. part of Star Wars, right? Just like with uh, A New Hope. He didn't know that Luke and Leia weren't siblings, so he wrote them a very sort of erotically charged love theme. Those are his words, right? He, he yeah, yeah. 
arrangement. Yeah. Right, which is what it sounds like. It's like yeah. something out of Tristan and Isolde, not a, a brother-sister thing. most inspired music he wrote for films has been for female characters that's very very interesting and i never thought about that perspective and that's that sounds yeah and that sounds like an interesting angle to observe and to study and and, and many of his most iconic themes I think of the not just leia's theme or, or marion um i mean those those kind of double as love themes yeah <laughs> maybe unintentionally or not han and leia luke and leia the relationship themes and, and Ray, which is the most recent example, this is clearly, I think, the part of scoring this project that he felt most passionate about and it really comes across. So I don't know exactly what to make of that. There are certain uh, stylistic choices he seems to make, at least with some of those earlier 70s, 80s uh, yeah. heroine themes that, that, that link them harmonically and in terms of the, the melodic gestures. Not with Ray, though. I mean, that sounds much more modern, much less cliche in a sense. Not not in a negative sense, but not resting on, on previously established tropes for, of musical femininity. Yeah, but it seems to me that sometimes Williams does give shape to some more abstract ideas. I was thinking about also your paper on JFK and Nixon, in those cases where he gives shape to a, an abstract idea like a political or idealistic point of view and how it informs uh, those undercurrent themes through the use of certain musical tools or ideas. And this is something he does more often than he's credited for, you know, giving musical substance to larger idea at the core of the film instead of just accompanying the narrative or the plot. Yeah, and, and that's actually one of the dangers, <laughs> something that I probably have un unwittingly or maybe wittingly perpetuated in labeling themes as character themes. And he, he, of course, suggests this in his own way as well, but take uh, Nixon or, or The Post or any of these uh, movies that are, that are based on real history, uh, where there may be character themes, uh, rather, uh, sometimes it's rather more appropriate to talk about them as representing forces in history or certain ideologies or, or, or way of thinking about what has occurred within, you know, America's past in, in those examples. So you're, I think you're absolutely right that, that that he does tap into a kind of more abstract way of, of characterizing things musically in, in those pictures. And part of it has to do with the specific movie and, and, and JFK and Nixon, you know, Oliver Stone. I don't think of him as a director who would have wanted a theme for, you know, Deep Throat in JFK or <laughs> Liddy in, in Nixon. You know, it's, not, it's less of a literal-minded director, at least in some ways. So it doesn't make sense to have these uh, uh, banner yeah. themes. And yes. instead you get something like the 1960s, the turbulent years, which is full of uh, motivic components, which do sort of collectively come to uh, uh, give insight into aspects of Nixon's personality as portrayed by Anthony Hopkins. But it's not the same as a Nixon theme. 
or even a theme for the movie Nixon, if that makes any sense. It's, it's much more abstract, much more uh, uh, intangible. Also think about uh, Lincoln. Even if Spielberg is someone who probably likes a lot to have clear themes in in his own films and ask John Williams to write at least one or two recognizable themes for his movies, Lincoln doesn't have a, a president's theme. It has it's, it's several melodic, very beautiful melodic ideas, but it doesn't have a clear Lincoln theme. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're 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 more you know evocative of a, a certain frame of mind, like loss yeah. or, or nobility or yeah uh, yeah a certain noble sobriety i think it was the term used by spielberg in the in the liner notes and that's perfect actually and in williams he does have his presidential style too which you see not only in, in lincoln and jfk and, and sort of the antithesis in nixon but also in you know, the music that he wrote for spielberg's millennium celebration or amistad when John Quincy Adams gets his sort of characteristic thematic material. It's not a leitmotif for him so much as a theme about due process in this country or whatever, you know, existed at that time. Or, or, or the post is more about the currents of history and, and, and uh, the value of our of journalistic institutions. And quite literally in the case of the fanfare he writes for Michael Dukakis or uh, Aaron Simple Gifts for, for Obama. I mean, these are directly in line, sometimes explicitly and overtly in a Copeland uh, vein, um, with you know, nods to other composers like Harris and, and yes. uh, Hanson and so on. Yeah, he taps into a very, into the collective uh, memory of the American music, I think. It's the kind of music that, well, not Nixon so much, but the other scores is attempting to convey sort of the ideals of this country, maybe not the reality so much, um, but but rather, you know, if you take the, the absolute best conception of what democracy is or, or the hope of this country as as uh, perverted as it is sometimes in these Oliver Stone movies, uh, yeah. uh, this is what he's attempting to translate uh, into musical terms. We tend not to think of him as a political composer, if only because he doesn't generally voice yeah. these things literally. He came kind of close, though, at, at Tanglewood this year. I don't know if you heard the broadcast over there, but yeah. You talked about the need for music as, as so many of our other cultural institutions are, are being, I don't know if the word was degraded or something along those lines. Uh, you can kind of read between the lines knowing knowing uh, what I do of Williams's uh, personal political beliefs and, and, and uh, uh, what, he, what he really meant there. But 
because music is political, if, if only because it's, it's attempting to kind of craft a narrative about what a lot of our United States of America's history, recent and, and, and distant, what it's about, right? He's writing the history musically in, in musical terms, in a really interesting, quite active way in these scores. And speaking about Tanglewood, I saw that you met him this year in yeah. Tanglewood. And <laughs> talk uh, about so, sort of a dream come <laughs> true. Oh my gosh. Is he aware about the work you're doing, especially about the catalog with Star Wars theme? And so on? I, I think uh, I think he was aware for maybe the 15 or so seconds in which <laughs> I was telling him about it. After which, you know, you went off to be feted with, you know, the other illustrious guests there. Um, I don't know that the work that people like you and I are doing so much on his radar, even compared to other actively working film composers who, who are familiar with the, the sort of scholarship in the fan communities, people yes. like David Shire, for example, or, or Shore, um, who are really invested in their legacies and also quite aware uh, and, and forthcoming with people looking to, to perpetuate them. I don't think Williams is, maybe there's no anxiety about his place in, in the larger uh, story of music that, that he has to worry about, you know, about who is writing and who is doing what or whatnot. Let's go back from where we started. So you, you're certainly a, a very fine example of how much John Williams informs and shapes the career and the life of many of his admirers and fans. Uh, so what do you think in this sense uh, John Williams' legacy will be? musically and also in general. Yeah, uh, a big part of his legacy is is indisputably solidifying the place of film music in the concert hall and in, in, in pops concerts and in, in popular venues, which is not to say that this kind of thing hadn't been going on long before he became the uh, conductor of the Boston Pops. But uh, if those earlier uh, maybe experiments in bringing uh, film music into uh, 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 live performances in the Hollywood Bowl or you know, all, mm -hmm. all the things that uh, people like Corn Gold or, or Prokofiev or Copeland were doing in, in converting their film music into concert works. Those are more, let's say, one-off types of projects. And then in, in the 1970s, so uh, people like Williams and, and Gerhardt and Kunzel, they, you know, together they really helped establish this canon, right? Mm -hmm. And he continues to do it. And he does it at the highest level, which I think is really important. This isn't some uh, sort of sloppily put together uh, uh, way to make a quick buck to bring in audiences. The, the way that he approaches yes. um, film music in, in 
the concert hall is done with the utmost seriousness. Even if it's playful music, it's still the absolute you know, pinnacle of, of uh, performance. Part of that certainly has to do with the fact that he is so shockingly, almost uh, uh, frighteningly competent as an orchestrator and as a writer idiomatically, for instance, and a very generous and, and, and uh, rewarding composer to play as instrumentalist. Yeah. Um, that, that, that has helped uh, solidify his place as well. And he continues to do this, and he continues to sort of promote his work in, in very, I think, important ways. So that will be a major legacy, regardless of how I think uh, film music as a style evolves. And, and certainly we're, we're right now in a, uh, a time period where the Williams style of film music composition is not in vogue. That's not a value judgment. It's just a statement of fact, right? He is sure. uh, writing in a style that very few attempt anymore, with with exceptions. I mean, people like John Powell or Giacchino or Shore or Silvestri, I think, you know, these kind of yeah. uh, uh, holding on to that grand symphonic tradition. But the the sway of the sort of uh, Zimmer school remote control productions, and that's much more powerful nowadays. Um, things could change, right? We could return to the big... Uh, extroverted symphonic thematic tradition you know things in hollywood are cyclical maybe we already are beginning to enter that uh a new regime i don't know but regardless of where film music as a style evolves in the next 20 or so years i, I think that his place in the the canon is without dispute we as musicologists we could come up with all sorts of issues with canonization and, and, and <laughs> What we're doing here but i mean at a certain point you also have to just admit that you know his music is, is of a, a certain quality that ought to guarantee that it remains there and the fact that it's also popular and it's part of these franchises that have such a crazy longevity right? we're never going to be over with star wars we're never going to be done with jurassic park and his music is yes. just a part of that it's like just the dna of those uh lucrative franchises and and to add one more thing i mean it can't be said enough times how many other musicians he's inspired, not even just musicians, but people uh, who are passionate about music, or perhaps not even consciously passionate about music, but people whose lives he's touched, right? That's a legacy in his own right. And, you know, my own interactions with my students, uh, they, they're fascinated by music by Hans Zimmer and, and uh, you know, the, the more modern school, but they love to play and to analyze and to, to write music like John Williams. So, that's a, that's a marker of a certain kind of musical longevity that, that, that Williams music, I'm sure, will enjoy. And if we can do our, our part to, to inform that and to make it systematic and, and accessible, <laughs> then we're doing something useful too, if, if comparatively small. Yeah, yeah, especially your work. I mean, it's very... Yeah, that's very, very generous of you. But, uh, but what you're doing with this podcast, I think, is really significant too, bringing together so many significant yeah. and illustrious figures and and getting them to talk in such candid ways right? there's there's a treasure trove of, of stories and people to tell them and because we can't it's unlikely we can get williams to, to come on <laughs> frank i thank you deeply for taking some time to talk with me about uh john williams and uh perhaps we can do another round probably maybe in january or february after uh, the Rise of Skywalker is out, and we have listened to the score. And, and well, this this has been a, a complete pleasure for me. And as you can tell, I, I really like talking about this stuff. And I I would love the opportunity to talk shop with you again about the Rise of Skywalker. So anytime you want. So I really thank you very much for for joining me today, and keep up the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful pleasure.
visit Frank's website frankleman.com slash Star Wars for the engaging and thorough analysis of the themes and leitmotifs of the Star Wars saga. From your host Maurizio Caschetto, thank you for listening. Until the next Legacy Conversation on the Legacy of John Williams.